You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview with the Irish Times. This week, we'll be looking at the West's response to the Ebola outbreak and asking whether extreme concern has given way to complacency. We'll also be looking at the shock result in Romania's presidential election and examining the enormous challenges facing Barack Obama as he faces the final two years of his presidency of the United States. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. First to Ebola. On March 23rd this year, the World Health Organization's African Regional Office reported an outbreak of Ebola virus disease in Guinea. Since then, cases have been reported in five additional West African countries in what has become the biggest outbreak of Ebola that the world has seen to date. Some 13,000 people have been affected and more than 5,000 have died. I'm joined by our health correspondent, Paul Cullen. Paul, did the Western world respond quickly enough to this outbreak in the first place, do you think? Well, I think the consensus is is no, and it's not just from people who might say you haven't done enough or anything. I think Barack Obama, the World Bank, a lot of leading organisations have admitted that they didn't get this right. They didn't get on the, onto the case fast enough. You mentioned, for example, that it was last December that the first case that we now know happened in Guinea. Um, yet it took until about March before people realised what exactly was involved. You have to remember, and there are you know there are mitigating factors here. Um, Ebola has been um, in Africa since the 1970s. We know there have been outbreaks in different places, i.e. in the centre of Africa, but there'd never been an outbreak this far up on the w- in, in the, n- the west of Africa. And people didn't recognise it for what it was. They thought it, were, it was a host of other things. Um, and uh, local communities were very reluctant to come forward and, and say that the clusters had arisen. So it took over three months, and it was only when MSF got involved and some of the French testing uh, institutes uh, sent samples to Paris that we knew at the end of March that we were dealing with Ebola. Okay, so that takes us to March. Then it wasn't until September that you got a UN declaration saying this is an international emergency. And that's a kind of a trigger for all sorts of intervention and, uh, and, and aid. So while the aid agencies in particular, the um, redoubt, uh, redoubtable MSF, were uh, there after it became recognised that we, we were dealing with Ebola because they've got experience of dealing with it. Um, those uh, vital days, weeks, months in the middle of this year were lost because of inaction and, uh, frankly, perhaps a lack of interest. And, and whose fault was that? Who, who should have been on the case? Is it the World Health Organization? Is it the governments in the countries concerned? Is it the UN? Um, is it all of these? Yeah, as usual, it's a mix of things. As I said, in the first few months, there was a failure to recognise the disease for what it was. And that was partly because it would never been seen in that part of the world. Then from March on, or from the end of March, um, we, we knew what uh, we were dealing with. And the alarm bells started ringing, but they weren't heard in Western capitals. So you got aid agencies going in, uh, scoping the area, sending small teams. Um, but they were always uh, chasing the curve. They were always behind the, the, the disease's spread. And it certainly spread. We already knew that uh, this was a very um, contagious disease. We, we knew it's all about its awful effects. Um, and in this case, for the first time, um, we allowed the disease through uh, or the slowness of our reaction to get to cities. And when we're talking about cities in West Africa, we're talking about crowded uh, slums, effectively, uh, the ideal breeding ground for a disease like this. Uh, and although Ebola isn't as transmissible as some other diseases that we might prefer, which are airborne, um, it is once uh, bodily 
contact of fluids occurs, it is lethal and uh, it's spread like wildfire in the cities. So um, one by one, Guinea, Liberia, Sierra Leone fell victim to it. And it, it wasn't long before people started saying it was out of control. So how do you deal with something like that? Well, you throw resources at it. So um, in this case, you th- throw uh, trained personnel, not just doctors, not just nurses, but also logisticians, um, people who are practiced about uh, dealing with communities and talking to communities and, and encouraging them in safer practice and to, to uh, reveal where there are cases occurring. Um, and you need uh, units in treatment units in which uh, the um, cases would be uh, handled. And um, that's not rocket science, really. But again, we were chasing the curve. And any time a a unit was set up, it was swamped by uh, cases coming in from the surrounding area. And once your unit's uh, full or too full, it's not a safe environment. So um, cases uh, ended up being, people were being uh, sent back home. And what does that mean? Sent back home to their community to spread the disease. Um, So again, you know, I think we were slow. In recent months, things have improved. I think, you know, you've seen the US Army, the British Army, uh, other, you know, large organisations who have the ability to mobilise skilled personnel in that sense uh, very quickly. And they've finally started doing the work that they should have been doing some months beforehand. And is it being directed now by the the World Health Organisation, which of course is an agency of the UN? Is that, uh, has that sufficiently taken control or... or um, are we still sort of relying on, on the aid agencies um, to take the lead on it? Um, no, the World Health Organization has, has been uh, at the helm of this um, um, campaign against the disease, but it itself has had its problems. And in fact, some of the criticism of the World Health Organization has come from within the organization, um, where, for example, one of the news wires were, was leaked uh, memos where uh, senior members of staff talked about incompetence among the staff on the ground and a bureaucracy uh, that hindered the um, efforts to counter the disease and to spread the message that this was a, a major epidemic that needed to be countered. And they also referred to the fact that some of the staff, the senior staff uh, directing country operations, were uh, they were politically motivated appointments. So you can see, you can see the pictures being painted there that uh, people were asleep on the job. Um, now, I defer to nobody in my admiration for the people who are working uh, both on the front line and in those countries uh, to uh, fight the epidemic because it's a very unusual, very frightening, very contagious situation. And uh, I think, you know, um, I wouldn't uh, be quick to criticise anybody who's uh, volunteered to do that work. But certain people were paid, that was their job, was to uh, coordinate the health efforts in West Africa. And it seems that 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 work wasn't being done as well as it should have been. And you mentioned there some of the the timetable from the first case in December through to March when it became known, the significance of the outbreak. Um, But... it took several more months, didn't it, really, before the West became really engaged. And we, we had a we had cases then arriving in, in Spain initially with a, a priest who came back from Liberia and died in a, in a Madrid hospital. And then a, subsequently a, a nurse who treated him became infected. Um, and then we had a couple of cases in the US. And there was almost panic then at, at this stage around late August, September. But do you, do you think... Um, uh, that has now given way to some complacency because uh, people maybe realise that, uh, in, in, thankfully, most of those people have been cured. There's now much less of a focus on it. And uh, um, are, are we switching off uh, the, the problem again now? Well, you're right. I suppose we shouldn't really be surprised that it took the emergence of cases 
in Western countries for the West to stand up and take notice seriously for the first time. Um, and perhaps we're seeing the flip side of that now in the sense that um, there are now, it seems, um, unlikely to be more cases or there are th those cases have been dealt with and therefore maybe we're losing interest. Um, what shocked the public in Western countries, in Ireland, everywhere else, I think, wasn't just that uh, cases emerged in Spain, in the US, etc., um, but that they were transmitted in some of those Western countries and they were transmitted within Western healthcare uh, institutions that you would think would be able to cope with that. Uh, and that caused, I mean, as a journalist, it was fascinating to see the story unfold. Um, but that caused uh, real concern and I for, forced a lot of people to wake up. And I think, I think you know, if there was a good side to it, it did uh, force um, the uh, authorities here in Ireland, for example, and in other countries to um, to react more seriously. I mean, it's, it's a matter of proportion, but um, certainly in Ireland, for example, I thought... Um, um, there was a lot of initial kind of assurance that, oh, yeah, it's all right. We know what to do if it happens. But when these things happened, they, the, the potency of the foe involved was truly realised. And it was necessary, it was realised it was necessary to ramp up efforts to ensure better coordination, to ensure training, uh, dry runs and so on. And so that was good. Now, the problem, as you say, is that... Um, Epidemics follow a particular course and those, those courses dictated by the uh, lethality of the disease, um, by the conditions in which the disease is spreading uh, and by the, the, the rules of mathematics, in fact, you know. So, you know, you get your curve and we seem to be going down the other side of the curve and p maybe people are thinking this is over and it's not over yet. First of all, um, we've still got a very large number of cases, far more than has been seen in any other epidemic um, before and large number of new cases still. Um, and second, what we've noticed um, in the various months during the summer, for example, is that at various times in, for example, in Liberia, and I think in Sierra Leone, it seemed to be that the disease was being um, controlled and the number of cases declined, only to come back st more strongly than before. So we have to be sure that we're not um, on some sort of a false indicator of a, of a downslope and that um, that we well and truly are starting to get on top of this disease and that's not we haven't reached that point yet yeah, because it is a very unpredictable disease isn't it it is I mean um, the and, and the figures uh, for mortality and the number of cases have varied a bit um, because remember we're dealing with countries which have very poor health infrastructures whose what health infrastructure they had has been destroyed by the disease. So, for example, if you caught malaria in the last six or nine months, um, you are likely to suffer greatly and perhaps die if you're in Liberia and Sierra Leone because the hospitals are not open to you, what hospitals there were. And, and, a ho and that applies to a whole host of other diseases. So, um, you know, the numbers have varied, but we, we but, and, and also the mortality rate has been interesting. You know, we've seen and uh, in the various epi um, outbreaks that we've seen since the 1970s, you know, uh, uh, for some of them, the, the, the um, death rate was up to 90 percent. Um, here, it seemed to be holding at 70 percent. Some figures put it down at 50 percent. Um, what's been fascinating, uh, if in a morbid sort of way, I suppose, is that it's almost like a game of roulette, you know, that we've seen. And particularly in the prominent cases that we've seen, for example, in the US, 
where recently a doctor has died only days after another doctor was cured. So, you know, um, for every two cases, there seemed to be w- one person who's l- lucky and unlucky. And of course, that largely relates to how serious their, their, their uh, Ebola was at the time the treatment began. And, and finally then, Paul, given all of that and given that I suppose the uncertainty about where where we are on that curve, what should governments be doing now? And do you think, and what should we as citizens, what should we be asking our governments to do? Well, um, I would be um, particularly um, unhappy, I think, with the um, the number of uh, medical and other staff who have gone from Ireland, for example, to work in those countries. As I said, it's very tough work. It takes a brave person to volunteer for it. Um, but only a handful of Irish doctors have uh, travelled there. Now, it's not clear to me uh, whether that's because um, most of the people who are qualified to do this kind of work are unwilling or unable to do so, or whether red tape or bureaucracy is holding up um, their efforts to get there and make a vital input. Um, certainly, Concern worldwide, one of the Irish agencies that is active in that country, but not in the medical sense, has expressed some uh, criticism of the red tape which has surrounded the uh, leave scheme that allows people to leave from the HSE. Now, I think that kind of same point applies in other countries as well. Um, and I think that given that we have learned a lot about this disease over the last few months, we've learned that it is very, very dangerous, but we've learned also, I think now, um, how to protect ourselves when we're dealing with it. I think there's an urgent need for as many qualified people to work on that over the next six months to make sure that we eliminate the current uh, epidemic. Paul Cullen, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Next to the US, where President Barack Obama faces a very challenging final two years in office now that the Democratic Party has lost control of the Senate in the recent midterm elections leaving the Republicans in charge of both houses of Congress. Two of the main battlegrounds between the White House and Capitol Hill are likely to be in the areas of the environment and immigration. I'm joined now from Washington by our correspondent, Simon Carswell. Simon, you wrote this week in the Irish Times about one particular project that epitomises the differences between the Democrats and Republicans and the environment, and that's the proposed Keystone XL pipeline from Texas to Canada. What is the Keystone XL pipeline, and, and why does it matter so much in the broader scheme of things? Well, it's a pipeline being proposed by a company called Trans Canada, a Canadian company, um, and it's a pipeline of about almost 2,000 miles long that would run from Canada down to the Gulf Coast in Texas. And what it would do is is take uh, tar sand oil from Alberta, which is a very heavy oil-producing area in Canada, and bring it down to refineries on the Gulf Coast. Um, Most Republicans would see uh, the president's opposition to that and the opposition of Democrats and environmentalists as a war on jobs. They see it as an opportunity to create employment um, along the, uh, both to the running of the pipeline and also the construction of the pipeline. And environmentalists say, well, it's, um, it's a war on the environment if this is built because it will lead to more carbon emissions. It will ultimately lead to oil being produced. That's, that's going to be exported out of the country. It's not even going to be used. Uh, and at a time when they're trying to cut uh, carbon, and, uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions, what, why would they consider something like this. Um, Obama himself is, is pretty lukewarm or cold, in, in fact, on the issue. He, uh, in his trip to Asia last week, said, well, um, 
it would not lower fuel prices for drivers, which is what some Republicans have been saying, and would allow Canada to pump their oil, send it through the U.S., stand to the Gulf, where it will be sold everywhere else. Um, and the White House is kind of taking a wait-and-see approach on this. It has to go through two reviews. There's a legal challenge being taken by landowners in Nebraska, uh, through which the pipeline is running over an aquifer, uh, and that has to be played out in the courts. And also there's a State Department review required, which is studying the pipeline proposal because uh, it's going to the State Department because it involves um, a deal, a business deal with another country. So they have to review the project as well, given that it crosses an international border. So those two reviews are going on, and Obama has said he's going to wait and see, gather up all the facts and wait and see um, what those reviews come up with. So Republicans want much more quick action. They want to see this being passed. And they're really trying to take the issue out of the president's hands. Um, you have um, the, the legislation has been proposed. It actually passed the House of Representatives last week, and the Senate is considering it this week. But what's interesting about it is that it's actually the legislation has been proposed by a Democratic senator in the Senate. It's uh, been pushed by Republicans in the Republican-controlled House. But at the moment, the Senate is controlled by Democrats, and there's a senator by the name of Mary Landrieu, who is seeking re-election um, in a runoff election next month. And she's pushing it because even though the pipeline isn't going near her state in Louisiana, she's saying, well, it'll create jobs, so we really want this to happen. And she wants to be seen to be pushing it to kind of to win over voters uh, so that she have a better chance of winning this runoff election next month. And at the moment, um, she, it's not looking great for her. Bill Cassidy is her as a congressman, a Republican congressman who's challenging her in Louisiana, and he sponsored the bill in the House, so he seemed to be pushing it, and that will seem, be seen as a success for him. But really, she's up against it. So this is kind of out of political expediency that she's trying to get this agreed in the Senate and to be the public face of pushing the Keystone Pipeline in the Senate. And um, you mentioned there, Simon, the the, the the sort of military terminology, the war on jobs and war on the environment. And, of course, um, Mitch McConnell, who will be the next Senate Majority Leader from, from January, um, he represents a big coal-burning state in, in Kentucky, and he says he's going to uh, fight what he calls the Obama administration's war on coal. Um, what exactly are there, are there... What kind of restrictions have has Obama been sort of placing on the coal industry that, that uh, McConnell doesn't like? Well, McConnell's made it very clear, in fact, the day after the midterm elections, which was a big win for him and his party, given that he's, he's going to be the majority leader in January in the new Congress. And he's made it clear that um, climate change, uh, the White House's climate change policies are, are, are a target, a key target for Republicans. And he's said that he's going to try his best to rein in the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and as you say, what, what he's described as this war on coal. The president has used um, 1970 Clean Air Act to uh, issue new ambitious regulations to the EPA, and those are intended to cut pollution from, um, from from vehicles, but also from power plants and from coal burning plants, such as the ones that are in um, Mitch McConnell's home state in Kentucky. And the White House has set these targets out until 2025. Um, Republicans are very unhappy with the uh, EPA's regulations. They see it as, again, uh, um, the Obama administration cracking down on jobs. And the they looked at reining it in on a number of fronts. They're trying to stop the EPA's new regulations that would lower existing standards for ozone. They're also trying to challenge the EPA on 
new rules that will extend the EPA's coverage of pollution restrictions to unregulated water waterways and to streams and wetlands. Again, Republicans are unhappy with this because they see it as, again, all part of this uh, greater government overreach into the states. Um, and also, we're likely to see Republicans trying to block uh, the regulations uh, that the EPA had been handed by President Obama, and they will try and take control of the regulations themselves uh, because the Congress has their own clean air and clean water, water acts as well. And also then they're going to assess, you're going to hear a lot more rhetoric over the coming months and over the coming two years, the final two years of, of President Obama's presidency on EPA's assessment of the costs of pollution to health, property and, and climate change and climate damage. Uh, and then, I mean, one of the key issues that McConnell is, is trying to roll back on is this find ways to block the EPA's draft rules to cut power plant pollution by 30% uh, by 2030. So those are all areas that you're going to see the Republicans attacking on. Uh, it, it, the issue also comes down to numbers. Um, the Republicans in, in the new Senate will have at least 53 seats if, they, if Democrats fail to get Mary Landrieu uh, re-elected in, in the runoff next month. They're, they're, uh, they will have 54 seats. But the problem for them is, is they need 60 seats to, uh, to make any bill filibuster-proof. Um, and the Democrats will have, con- will have the power to filibuster bills. The issue for Democrats is, though, that there are Democrats from energy states who will side with Republicans on a lot of these issues. So they could very well get the 60 votes that are required. The problem for Republicans is they need 67 votes to overcome any presidential veto. And that's unlikely. They're unlikely to get that. And of course, Simon, the other big issue we mentioned there at the outset was immigration. And that's that's one where um, the Democrats and Obama um, are, are, would like to see some progress made. Mitch McConnell, I think it's, it's fair to say, is somebody who is... Um, maybe more of a pragmatist than some of his some of his Republican colleagues, he's prepared to do business with Obama. So what um, kind of horse trading are we likely to see between him, um, McConnell and Obama on the issues of environment versus immigration in the months ahead? Well, on the issue of immigration, in some ways it's nothing to do with immigration, the problems that the Republicans have with the White House and with President Obama. Uh, the President has threatened to take executive action, which is acting alone, bypassing Congress to uh, change immigration, the immigration system somewhat, that would lift the threat of deportation. Now, all the indications that we're getting from administration officials is that the president is planning to take actions that would protect up to 5 million of the estimated 11 million illegal immigrants in the U.S. to lift the threat of deportation on those 5 million or so. Um, Now, Republicans are deeply unhappy about that. Um, Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House, came out and said, well, uh, he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't be taking executive action and bypassing us. Mitch McConnell has said that executive action would be a red rag to a bull. John Boehner has said it would poison the well. So they've very clearly set out that this would be a red line issue for them. Uh, saying that, McConnell has said uh, the day after the midterm elections, he said in, in a lengthy press, press conference, that they don't intend to shut down the government, to threaten to shut down the government over um, over any any contentious issues. So it's, it'll be It'll be interesting to see how far Republicans are willing to go on the issue of immigration. President Obama has said, he said it this year and he said it last year, he said if uh, Republicans get together with Democrats and pass a bipartisan bill uh, that he supports on immigration reform, then he'll sign that bill and he won't have to take up uh, any kind of executive action. He said on his trip to Asia last week that he said, well, he's happy to crumple up whatever executive actions he was planning and toss them in the wastebasket if 
uh, Republicans do get together and pass a bill. And McConnell has shown himself to be willing to compromise. The um, the Senate last year passed a bipartisan bill by a, a gang of eight. It was four Democratic senators, four Republican senators. But that bill has stalled. You know, it should be pointed out that the bill was passed in a Democratic-controlled Senate, and it's stalled in a Republican-controlled House. The Republicans in the House want the president to strengthen the border and uh, guarantee that there's this, any new measures that are introduced to help illegal immigrants. It doesn't encourage a new wave of immigrants into the country. They also want a verification system for existing immigrants to make sure those that are in the country uh, are paying taxes. But uh, the Obama administration and the Democratic Party has got serious flack from um, Hispanic groups, Latino groups, and uh, minority groups in the U.S. These are core constituents for the Democratic Party. And they're very annoyed that President Obama hasn't taken action um, because he had said that, well, we need to fix this. And they were annoyed that he had been delaying it for so long. He had he had said earlier this year that he was going to introduce executive action if Republicans didn't act in Congress. And he put that on the long finger because of how politically sensitive an issue it was in the run-up to the midterm elections. Now he said he'll act before the end of the year. But this again, like the climate change issues and the environmental issues is becoming a key battleground between Democrats and Republicans. And given that the president has said that he's intending to introduce this before the end of the year, and it's unlikely that the Republicans will introduce a bill in response to that threat, I think we're going to see a major collision between the White House and the Republican-controlled Congress from January. But even before then, in this lame duck session up until the end of the year, you're going to see major tensions between the parties on this issue. And, and finally, and briefly, Simon, if Obama does manage to get through the reforms he wants to get through quickly, what would that mean for the many thousands of undocumented Irish and people of other nationalities who have been stuck in the United States for many years, unable to, to visit home for fear of not being able to, to return? Well, it's expected to help in uh, a good number of the Irish here. Uh, in reality, we don't know how many Irish, uh, illegal Irish are in the United States because of the nature of their legal status. We don't know how many there are, and we don't know how many will be affected by these executive orders. The administration has signaled that what they intend to do, what the president intends to do under executive actions, is to allow the parents, uh, these illegal immigrants, parents of American-born citizens or legal residents, to be allowed to stay and to work in in the U.S. Um, so it's expected that that's going to affect it's something in the thousands of Irish immigrants. Uh, and also the executive actions are expected to help immigrants who have been here a long time, possibly between uh, at least eight years in the U.S., maybe 10 years. It's, we don't know the exact timeline yet of, of the um, how the measures will affect the particular classes of immigrants that are here. But uh, it's expected to, uh, to help some thousands of Irish. And we've seen lobbying by the Taoiseach who was in New York last week and also by the Minister for the Diaspora, Jimmy Dean, in the week before. He was saying that he would hope that, both were saying that they would hope that any actions that the President would take would allow Irish who are living illegally in the US to be able to return home to Ireland for important family occasions such as weddings and funerals and we've heard many tragic stories of people who have been unable to return home so there is a hope amongst immigration advocates that um, the changes that are introduced will allow uh, the Irish to return home and in some cases many have been not been home for, for some number of years Okay, so some reason for hope there Simon Carswell in Washington, we'll leave it there Thank you very much You're listening to the Irish Times And finally to Romania 
On Sunday last, long queues were observed in Dublin, Paris and other Western European capitals of Romanian people lining up to vote in their country's presidential election. The very large turnout by Romanians living abroad was one of the key factors in the shock result that ensued, with the seemingly unbeatable Prime Minister, Victor Ponta, suffering a decisive defeat to the rank outsider, Klaus Johannes. I'm joined by our Eastern European correspondent, Daniel Midlockton. Dan, first of all, who is Klaus Johannes and why was his victory in this election such a surprise? Well, he's an interesting character. He's been the mayor of, of the city of Sibiu, which is a sort of medium-sized city of uh, about 150,000 people in, in, in Transylvania. He's been the mayor of Sibiu for about uh, uh, 14 years, re-elected several times with huge majorities, but he's only recently moved into national politics. Um, he's interesting because he's um, he comes from, from well outside the... the um, metropolitan elite, the Bucharest elite, political elite, um, and he's seen as a figure that's very different to to, uh, to, to most uh, Romanian mainstream politicians, major politicians and high-profile politicians. He's from the small German minority that uh, is centered up in Transylvania. Um, he's a Lutheran rather than Romanian Orthodox, which puts him in a, a, a very small minority as well in the country. Um, and he's seen as representing uh, lots of things that some of the most high-profile politicians in Romania um, aren't. Um, he's seen as very clean. He's seen as, as being absolutely uh, non-corrupt. Um, and he's on promises to basically um, uh, clean out Romanian politics uh, and and. and do what he's done for Sibiu uh, for the whole country in, in terms of um, running it as a good manager, um, cleaning out corruption, making it very efficient, attracting um, lots of foreign investment, lowering the unemployment rate. All things that he's done in Sibiu, he's promised to do for the country as a whole. Um, but after the first round of, of elections, when he lost by about 10% to, to Victor Ponce, but, but he did go through to the runoff, he wasn't seen as having a great chance. Um, but you mentioned the uh, uh, the issue around the very high turnout at uh, Romanian embassies around Europe and consulates for voting. Um, a, a key issue um, on which the election hinged ultimately was the fact that there were huge problems for the Romanian diaspora in voting at, at uh, uh, embassies and consulates. Um, the procedure was extremely bureaucratic. Um, and it was extremely slow. So it meant that lots of people who wanted to vote didn't get a chance. Now, um, anger over this uh, in the first round translated into votes against Ponta, who was seen as the, the establishment candidate, and he is the incumbent prime minister. So lots of those votes that went against Ponta went for Johannes, and having trailed by about 10% in the first round, he turned it around, and in the runoff, he, um, he ultimately won by 10%. A great shot for Ponta, and a great shot for the uh, political establishment in Romania. And he now becomes president, and, and while the man he defeated, Ponta, um, remains as prime minister, at least for now. Can you explain for us, Dan, for, for those of us maybe not intimately familiar with the Romanian uh, political and electoral system, the respective powers now of the two men, and, and how will they, they work together, or will, how will they interact? Well, one of the um, the main fears um, going into the election for people who were um, skeptical or opposed to Ponce's presidency, they were worried that he would have too much power in his hands. He had been prime minister, uh, and he still is prime minister. If he'd become president and one of his allies had become prime minister and they had control of parliament, they would have obviously dominated the political scene in Romania. Now, with a different president, the president's key roles really involve um, shaping foreign policy, 
shaping defence policy, appointing top uh, judicial figures, and appointing top um, intelligence agency officials. So there will now be a clear um, split between the roles of, uh, of Ponta and his supporters and Johannes and his supporters. That's seen as giving more balance to the political system and having a, a safer balance of power, really, in Romania. Um, of great interest now, obviously, going forward, is how the two men will manage to get on with each other and how their respective parties will get on with each other. It was imagined that Johannes, being a um, uh, apparently a relatively mild figure, certainly compared to his predecessor, Trian Bisescu, who was always... Um, arguing, always having rows with Ponta. It was thought that, that, that Ponta and Johannes may be able to get on because he's not such a confrontational figure, Johannes. Um, but already he said today that uh, he, he is in favor of early elections. Ponta and his, um, and his party were hoping to stay in power in government until 2016, but Johannes and his party seem intent on pressing home their advantage now, and they may push for early elections, which would obviously increase tension between president and prime minister and between their respective supporters. And uh, the vote down at the weekend, I suppose it, it could be classed as some kind of a, a protest vote. I'm not sure if that's a proper description or not. But um, around the same time, we've had um, also in other Eastern European countries, in Hungary, where you're based, uh, people have been out in the streets uh, protesting against their government. We've seen the same in Prague in the last few days. What's going on? Is there a connection between um, these events or are they isolated? Um well, certainly, uh, when you look at what's happened in the Czech Republic and in Hungary, we saw big protests in Prague and Budapest yesterday, that's on Monday, um, against Prime Minister Viktor Orban in Hungary and President Milos Zeman in the Czech Republic. Um, when you look at a lot of the slogans, a lot of the criticism that, that's um, been aimed at those two men, there are, there are clear similarities. Both of them are accused of, being, um, uh, of, of trying to focus too much power in their own hands, both of them have praised uh, Russian and Chinese models of governance in in recent weeks and months, um, and suggested that uh, these are the, the, there are certain leaves out of those books that, that the European Union could take and European leaders could take um, in terms of running their countries more efficiently. They're both seen also as being relatively soft on Russia in terms of uh, annexing Crimea and Russia's role in, in eastern Ukraine, and both are seen as opponents of um, stronger sanctions against Russia. So we've seen strong protests against both those, um, both those men in terms of um, those issues. Also in Hungary, there's a, a, a strong feeling that the government is... Um, is not tough enough on corruption, that lots of um, Orban's allies are becoming very rich, have become very rich during his time in power. There's also a feeling um, across the region that um, perhaps some of the... Um, some of the lessons that were that were learned, the example that was set really in 1989, 25 years ago, and we are seeing lots of commemorative events around the region. Some of those lessons have been lost, and uh, and some of those freedoms gained um, are perhaps in danger again. And this, and uh, and um, some of the, um, the, the the strong pro-European feeling, and obviously the pro-democracy feeling that fed through those 89 protests and the revolutions around the region. Um, are now being are now being forgotten and are not appreciated by the the current governments in power, and a lot of people have come out on the streets, uh, waving banners that are reminiscent of 1989, and um, and they're certainly pushing for uh, 
for those lessons of the of the time back in eighty nine to be to be remembered and for the, the the democratic gains to to not be put in danger by current leaders. And what level level of support Dan, Dan do you think there is for these um, protests? I mean, Orban in particular in Hungary remains. He's very secure, really, isn't he? And he does have a very large majority support still. Or is that changing now? He does have um, a two-thirds majority in Parliament still, Orban. So um, he's still in a position whereby, uh, at least uh, in the legislature, if he wants to push through any laws, he can do it. And there's no, there, are, there are no signs of cracks emerging in his parties or or rivals to his leadership really emerging and appearing. Um, however... A key thing in Hungary is really there's great disillusionment with the whole political system. So Orban has won comfortably in the last two elections, but on relatively poor turnout, lots of people are simply disillusioned with their current political options. So we've seen um, the current wave of protests against Orban really being channeled through civil society rather than political parties or political leaders. The key issue in recent months has been um, an internet tax that, uh, that the government backed and that Orban backed initially. Um, he wanted uh, to impose uh, a tax on, 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 on the amount of data used. So everyone using the internet, according to the amount of data that they uh, transferred, they would have to pay a certain amount of money on that in a bid to raise more money for, um, for the state coffers. There were huge protests, up to 100,000 people coming out in, in, in Budapest to, um, to oppose this proposal. And um, Orban did have to back down in the end. It's very, very rare that he backs down. Uh, he claims to be the voice of the people, to be effectively channeling the spirit of the people. But we've seen more and more people willing to come out on the streets, not through organized political parties, but through civil movements um, to oppose him. Whether this can transfer itself into um, a political movement, a sustainable political movement that could challenge Orban at the ballot box next time round remains to be seen. And, and finally, Dan, just to come back to Romania, you, you write in the Irish Times today about the litany of problems Romania faces from corruption to mass immigration and, and poverty and so on. Um, I'm sure many of those people, I saw them queuing myself actually at the Romanian embassy in Dublin. I'm sure at least some of them um, are, uh, have left Romania for economic reasons and would probably like to live and work in their own country if they had that option. Um, how much hope uh, does the election of, of this uh, outsider, known, I think by many people as, as the German in, in Romania, how much hope does he give that there may be a brighter future ahead? Uh, I think he's given people a lot of hope. Um, they they look at Sibiu, the city where he's been there for 14 years, and it really represents lots of the things that they would like to see um, transferred to the national scale. They want there to be more foreign investment. They want there to be less corruption. They want um, building projects and restoration project projects to be successful and for lots of money not to be stolen during those projects. Um, and they expect him to forge stronger alliances with the West to attract more investment from the West. Um, and they certainly hope that um, he will inject more, more of a um, more honesty, uh, more straight dealing into Romanian politics. And they believe that if these things can be done, um, there is a bright future for the country. And as you say, lots of those people who have left for economic reasons, if they do see a different political culture and a different business culture in the country, they would certainly be willing to go home and um, and build that new Romania, which they hope uh, Johannes will also be able to build over the next few years. Dan, a very interesting analysis. We'll leave it there. Thank you. That's it from this week's edition of Worldview from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and me, Chris Dooley. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.